Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. Now, this is Dick Drobnik, the USC iBear director, uh, talking with Gary Reichel on the sidelines of the 30th annual Asia Pacific Business Outlook where Gary has just given a fascinating uh, lunch talk to an audience of about 370 people. Gary, could you start by telling us a little bit about Chimang Ventures and, and your career leading up to your investment banking operations in China today? Okay. So I was a uh, biology major at Reed College, but when I graduated from college, I was broke so I needed to take a job to make some money. I was actually going to go to the Hull Institute of Immunology in Melbourne, Australia to uh, get my PhD. And I subsequently uh, worked at Intel and decided to stay in business. So I went to get my MBA, and then after that went to a computer startup. I think I had the lowest starting salary of any you know, Harvard MBA in the class of 84. And uh, But what I did during that period of time was I started in manufacturing, then I set up product marketing for them, and then subsequently set up all international operations. And I went and lived in Japan for five years. During that period of time... Were, most, you, were you a Japanese fluent speaker at that time? No, I was not. I went to Japan speaking virtually no Japanese and, and managed to learn uh, Japanese when I was there. But the most important meeting in Japan was at a driving range. Which will be more important, which will be even more important later. But I was playing, uh, hitting golf balls with Masayoshi Son, the head of SoftBank, the first time we met. And uh, we met. We just had, by chance you met there, or you guys arranged to play uh, golf? A or? friend, a friend named Bill Howe, who's running Intel, uh, Intel in China, in uh, Japan, introduced us. So we wound up having lunch. I went back to his house, and we stayed up till 11:30 talking. So we became very close friends. And, what what uh, year was that, Gary? That was 1989. And then subsequently, um, I left Japan in 1993 and went to Cisco. And one of the things that really did change, I think, the direction of my life was putting together a joint venture between Cisco and uh, 11 Japanese companies. SoftBank was the leading investor. So they sold 25% of Cisco Japan to this group of investors. And SoftBank, again, was one of them. As a result of that, Masa wound up going on, on Cisco's board, which allowed him to see what was happening more on the internet. This is circa 93, 94, which led to his investment in Yahoo, the first investment in Yahoo. And for me, um, it made just cemented our relationship and we stayed friends. And in 95, he asked me to play golf again. And we're down playing golf. And at the end of the round, he goes, what are you gonna do? I said, well, what are you thinking about? And he says, well, I'm gonna set up a venture capital fund. Do you wanna run the venture capital fund? I'd never thought about being a venture capitalist, but it turned out my career had been in chips, computer systems, and networking, which actually was a pretty good background for VC circa 1995. It was built on biology. Exactly. It's, we're now getting back to the biology part. But uh, So I wound up uh, joining SoftBank in November of 1995 to head up their venture capital group. And so I spent 10 years at SoftBank, um, nine and a half years at SoftBank, retired in 2004. My wife and I were going to take our kids overseas for a year, six months in Europe, uh, homeschooling, and then six months in school in China. And we got to China, and there was just that sense that it was going to be a phenomenal investment opportunity. So the venture capital firm that we set up in China, Qi Ming, we set up in November of 2005. And 
I've been running that ever since. So you've had this lifelong plan to be a venture capitalist in China, starting with exactly. your biology studies at Reed. At Reed College, yes, the, exactly. The sort of quasi-accidental driving range experience uh, with, with Masa. Well, what was really interesting is the reason that I could do Qi Ming was because in 2000, Cisco wanted to buy SoftBank out of its position in the joint venture. So on this time, I was on the SoftBank side of the negotiation. So it was kind of fun. You don't get too many of these. So for a $10 million investment, SoftBank received $450 million in cash, $650 million of equipment, and $450 million toward a fund called SAFE for the SAFE uh, SoftBank Asia Infrastructure Fund. $10 million became $1.5 billion approximately? Oh, more than that if you look at the returns on the fund. But yeah, so not bad. Now, on the other hand, before you feel too sorry for Cisco, it was because Cisco's business was about $150 million in 1993, was $1.87 billion in 2000, and about close to 40% net margin. So it was, not a, it was not a really painful discussion. I mean, no one wants to pay that much. No one, Masa thought he received too little. Those are always the way things work. But the growth was so big. The growth was so big. Okay. It was a very successful joint venture. What it did, and actually as a business, business strategy, what was interesting about this was when we did the joint venture, we offered the, all the Japanese, so we had Fujitsu, Hitachi, NEC, Toshiba, uh, Sony. We had all these as investors. And what we did was we knew the cycle times were coming down on the router uh, market for Cisco. So you're going to have to have new products in the market much more rapidly. What wound up happening was we offered all the Japanese partners that we will license you our iOS, our internet, work, internet operating system. It didn't actually exist. It was a bunch of code that had been hobbled together that allowed Cisco's routing protocols to work on all of its networks, uh, something called IGRP in particular. And the, what happened right then is all the Japanese, every time they went to do a product, they'd say, well, can we use the Cisco stuff? It slowed them down by 12 to 18 months they never could recover. And that was a conscious decision when we were looking at it. We did not share that with SoftBank because SoftBank didn't understand our business. Masa wanted the relationship with Cisco because he knew it was gonna be a powerful company. Um, but he did not appreciate how quickly the cycle times were gonna be evolving in that business. And the Japanese, unlike the Chinese, the Japanese have a really hard time with quick cycle times. They are really good at long run manufacturing, maybe the best in the world. Um, best in the world at that. But they really struggle when they have to take a lot of market input and constantly uh, turn, the, turn the product. And that was something that uh, just crushed them. Okay, so you started this operation in, in Shanghai in 2005 or so. What's it grown to and what kinds of sectors are you mostly invested in? So we've grown to uh, 55 people, full-time people. We've grown to about $3 billion uh, under management. Our first fund was $200 million. And the progression's been two, three, four, fifty, five, six, fifty, and then we have a series of R and B funds. Are there particular sectors you're you're investing in? Yes. Um, so we do four things. We do core, what I'd call IT, and that could be devices, um, electronic products. So we have a drone company, that's the second largest drone company in China after DJI, um, and we have some next generation Chinese-based enterprise. Uh, software products. A drone company. Who, who's the customer for the drones? The police? Consumers. Consumers? Consumers. So you can uh, 
You can you I can, can just fly, fly my my drone around Shanghai without. Well, not everywhere around Shanghai. So you're better off keeping it in your housing compound and okay. uh, not flying it too high over any, any sensitive uh, sensitive areas. I mean, until for the longest time, you could not have a purchase. You could not have a helicopter tour of Shanghai until last year. You literally you were especially as a foreigner, you were not allowed to take a helicopter tour of Shanghai. This is where the um, insecurity gets to a rather extreme level. But um, so we're doing the IT area. Then we have a very large base of internet-related uh, businesses. Um, so yeah, we have the May to, what's called uh, Meituan, uh, Dianping, which is like Yelp, and uh, OpenTable here. Uh, we have the Xiaomi business. Uh, we have uh, a company called Moguje, which was which is one of the largest independent uh, e-commerce sites that's independent from uh, from Alibaba. Um, and then we do healthcare. So we're the largest healthcare investor in venture capital in China. So we have 60 companies. What, are these hospitals or no. home service? Or? No, in fact, we do very little service business and we don't do any wet lab bio work. So we're not doing early stage drug discovery, but we do pretty much everything between that and hospital privatizations. So we have a couple hospital, we have a rehab hospital investment that we've made, but we really have stayed away from the high-end services stuff unless it's an interesting opportunity because it's hard to scale those. It's easy to buy into one hospital. It's hard to turn a great neurological hospital into 10 great neurological hospitals, which our business model uh, requires. So, so we have healthcare, IT, and uh, internet, intersumer-related businesses, and then we have clean tech. So we also have a very strong clean tech practice, and that business that's been small, we've kept it to about five to seven percent of the funds. Is that solar? Or is that wind? Is no, we have never done alternative energy. Okay. What we've done is we've done all the things related to environmental cleanup. So we have a smart metering power management company that went public last year. We have a wastewater treatment company that went public this year. Um, so we are, are, are the technologies in the, either of those uh, Chinese-grown technologies or brought in the technologies brought in from Japan or the United States? Or? The meter company, it's homegrown, but it's not terribly advanced. Um, it's, they just happen to be very effective. And they, did a business, they chose a business model, which was interesting. They looked in China and they said, no one's going to make money in this business in China. So they went to Iran and went to Egypt. And it turns out, I think several years ago, they were up to 60% market share. In, in Iran and Egypt. In Iran and Egypt, which is not a bad business. And their margins were three times what they would have been inside China because, mm. like we were talking about over lunch, the Chinese just destroy their own, their own, they eat their own young before they even have a chance to, and not that many of them mature. And so their, the problem with that market there was there wasn't enough differentiation in China. And then, so those are the four areas. And I would say, What's made us famous in China, you always get famous for certain investments, but the healthcare team has done 60 investments in 11 years. We've had one deal not return capital in 11 years. One out, out of 60. Out of 60. That is an extraordinary number. And that team is just phenomenal. So now when I'm back in the US, I'm setting up a fund here to do healthcare investing in the US because one of the things I learned at SoftBank was we had this visibility in what was happening in Japan and you could identify what was useful in the U.S. and bring it to Japan. And some of those turned out to be really spectacular investments for SoftBank. So what we're doing now is looking at what our portfolio companies in China need on healthcare. And then we have a team here that's two partners now with me that is going out and looking 
at the kind of firms that are available here and figuring out if there's a fit for those companies to go to China. And, and the reason that that works now is that the healthcare system between the U.S. and China is converging. So it used to be the Chinese were really afraid of a foreign firm coming and doing trials on Chinese citizens, probably with good reason. They now are at the point that if a company has filed for what's called an NDA, an indication, to do a phase one trial and it's been accepted, you can immediately file to do a phase one trial in China. This, is, this takes the period of time. Before, there was virtually no reason for a startup biotech company to look at China because from the time you received your approvals in the U.S. for phase two, you were probably bought. Um, and, if, if that, and if it was successful, you were probably bought for a large number. And you couldn't even start the trials in China until you're already in phase three in the U.S. Hmm. So it was a five-year lag. That's been now compressed down to about a year. That's a, that's a big change. And I think, I think that shows the point we were, we were talking about over lunch, which is healthcare opportunities, helping the Chinese citizen with lifestyle diseases and everything that they have, I, I don't think that's a bounded opportunity. I think it's just, just uh, spectacular. Can you explain the, the leadership of the firm, the composition and, and how you compensate uh, your four or five colleagues? So the way that we're organized is um, we have a basic um, system, which is, if you have a title, you are paid pretty much the same as everyone else. And what I did when we started the firm was we did that right at the top. So at the beginning, there were two. There was another co-founder, Dwayne. So he and I had the same compensation. JP Gon joined later that year, and he was immediately made had the same compensation as Dwayne and I. Um, then we had Nisa, William, and other people join. So every time someone becomes a managing partner. Everyone basically gets diluted, and when we'd make that, because our logic is we want it to be their firm. You know, we didn't call it Rochelle's Great China Adventure, uh, you know, Venture Capital Fund, because... What is the meaning of Qiming? Qiming means to enlighten or inspire, and it can mean new star. It's actually, we get high marks for having one of the better Chinese names of any of the venture funds in China, which I think is cool. My wife picked the name, so, hey. and um, with, uh, with Dwayne, and so... What we, we, what we philosophically say is it's really hard to become a partner at Qiming. It's really hard to become a managing partner. But once you're there, we don't really see why the founders should necessarily have some kind of legacy benefit. Um, and the logic behind that is you never know in our business who's going to make the next great deal. But it goes back to kind of trust but verify, right? So if you wait for everyone to prove that they're fantastic at this, then they've already gone and started their own firm. And so you're going to lose all your best people. So you're going to have to take the chance. You're going to have to step up and say, we trust you to do this. So all the managing partners have the same comp. All the partners have the same comp. All the principals have the same comp. And, and that's true in terms of bonuses and commissions and... Yeah, what we call carry. So our carry is our profit sharing. And it's, all, it's the same across the board. Are there any challenges for your business looking forward uh, for the next three, five years? What, what are one or two things that you think are challenges? Our business is weird. It gets easier and harder over time. So it gets easier because if you have a good reputation, mm -hmm. then more entrepreneurs want to talk to you and you get your reputations out there so people seek you out. That's the good part. The bad news is as venture capital has gone from $1 billion to $37 billion in China, available to invest in China over the last uh, 10 years, 11 that, years. That's the amount that's been invested? That's the amount that's available to invest. 
over and above what's been invested. Yes. Wow. It's a big number. And so when you look at that, then our business gets harder because it's more competitive more to get into every deal. It's, there's more competition. Prices are going up. Um, and so, and then that's only the dollar side. The, the RMB side has proliferated with many, many different funds. And more and more of the fun, more and more of the entrepreneurs now want to start a company with local money because then they don't have to worry about the safe requirements and moving money in and out of China. So there's a lot of reasons why at some point you will have the market mostly be RMB, or they'll have finally come to grips with the uh, normalization of the currency and you won't have to worry about it. They'll free up the capital account and you won't have to worry about it. And I'm not sure which happens first. Gary, with the U.S. government talking about China being a bad player and an unfair player, do you think there'll be any real action by the U.S. against China? The problem with government policy, and it <laughs> could be China's government policy, it could be the U.S. government policy, um, is that inevitably they wind up focusing on the wrong things. Um, but our business, again, is in the right path of where China's future is, which is startups, private enterprise. That's where all the growth, all the juice is in that economy. Um, so I don't think, and that definitely doesn't appear to be the focus of the U.S. You know, policy. The U.S. policy is you know, focused on SOEs, focused on uh, you know, market manipulation by China. And the entrepreneurs will tell you they don't get any benefit from the Chinese government in terms of market manipulation. The private company, Alibaba, we were talking about Alibaba earlier and then some of the uh, counterfeit goods and stuff that they don't get cracked down on maybe as hard. They probably would have been in court a thousand times in the United States already to the point it might have actually hurt their market, market cap. But outside of those examples, private companies don't get a lot of air cover from the Chinese. Yeah. The, the issue on uh, visas for Chinese PhDs or Indian PhDs, our, our policy is absolutely bizarre. Here, they come here, they work for USC professors, UCLA professors, Stanford professors, using grants from the federal government the professor has, we're financing their education, Get their degree and developing <laughs> their knowledge base, and then we say go home. <laughs> no, it, and, and so I think, I think that the reason that that has been so hard to address is that only about 40, only about 10 states really get the benefit of that. You know, the, state, the states on the two coasts and the institutions there, you know, USC would be a huge benefit, UCLA would be a huge beneficiary of that. But I don't think University of Nebraska gets a huge, you know, gets a lot. The automobile industry, you know, the uh, GM labs and things. And uh, uh, is it the Kessler? There's an institute, I forget the name of it, uh, that specialize in automotive, and that probably is half Chinese now. But it's exactly what you said. They come over, they get trained, and they leave. And so if you're worried about that, if you're really worried about that, if that's really your legitimate concern, then the only rational policy is to try to capture the seed corn that's allowing these countries to uh, develop. Gary, thank you very much for joining us at APBO. Thank you for educating our, our audience today, and thank you for joining the IBR podcast series. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.